Hey there, I'm so glad you're here. My name is Margaret Petrie, and this is Authentic Obsessions. The world is filled with prolific creatives who have an obsessive hunger to write. In this episode, I talk with Nick Petrie, yes, he's my sweet patootie, who writes the Peter Ash crime fiction series. Even though Nick is not technically an artist, during his creative life as a craftsman and a writer, he struggles with the same issues that we all do. If you lead any kind of a creative life, I think you'll find something in our conversation that you can relate to. His first novel, The Drifter, was nominated for six awards and won three. He also won the 2016 Literary Award from the Wisconsin Library Association and was named one of Apple's 10 Writers to Read in 2017. In this episode, Nick talks about those internal voices and how to keep at the thing you love doing day after day, even if it sometimes drives you crazy. You can follow him on Facebook or Twitter and sign up for his newsletter and check out his upcoming virtual book event on October 14th, where he interviews John Grisham. Yes, that John Grisham. As always, you can see links and takeaways in the show notes and on his episode page at AuthenticObsessions.com. If you like this episode, if it resonates with you, and if you think someone else might appreciate it, please share it with a friend. This project is about sharing the stories and experiences of creative souls. Okay, without further ado, here's my conversation with my lovely husband and the father of our trip son, Nick Petrie. Nick, I'm really glad you agreed to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for asking me. It's nice to be included in this great project. Can you start off and tell our listeners a little bit about your creative path as it pertains to your writing life? My creative path? Let's see. Um, well, I, uh, I started writing fiction in uh, my senior year in high school. My undergraduate degree is in creative writing and also in American culture. So I've been interested in reading about and writing about the many facets of America for a long, long time. Uh, but it took me really 25 years of writing fiction to f- ever finally get a novel published. Um, I, I published a couple of short stories. I'd won a couple of awards, but I, I wrote three novels I couldn't get published before I finally got uh, my first novel called The Drifter was published in 2016. Is that right? So it's a it, it's been a long it's been a long road, and uh, many opportunities to uh, give up along the way. Uh, the one of the the many good things about being married to Margaret Petrie is that she recognized very early on. You recognized very early on that when I didn't have a writing project, I was not a lot of fun uh, to live with. True. So you you really encouraged me to to keep going, and uh, I I really appreciate that. Even though it meant there was less time for me because you are working full time. And once we had Duncan, it was even less time that we spent together, but I don't regret any of it. Maybe in the moment, I was a little resentful <laughs> once in a while about, the, you know, just considering the time that it took away from us, but we wouldn't have lasted if you didn't write. Well, and it's not like I, I, I also spent all weekend, you know, watching sports or <laughs> took long fishing vacations or, I mean, I, it, I really didn't do anything except run my business and write fiction and do family stuff. And that was sort of the deal I made with myself early on, which is that, you know, I, I only got so much uh, leeway in this marriage that was very important to me. And so I wanted to not squander it, you know, the, the time that I had to work on my own stuff by doing dumb stuff or stuff that wasn't going to be family stuff. It is true that you can only do three things, and I'm glad those are the three things that you picked. I have a lot of focus, but I don't have a lot of breadth across that. 
focus. Do you remember when you first wrote something that you loved? I do. I was a senior in high school and and I had basically already taken all of the English courses that my high school had to offer. And so I took this creative writing class at UWM. And and it was this it was a short story that about a I don't know, I guess a kid lying in bed, sort of listening to the monsters under the bed. And it, it something about it really, and I, I don't have nightmares about the monsters under the bed, but it was the first thing I'd written that was, that was not sort of for a specific assignment. It was, it was write a story, no more than 10 pages. And this was what came out. And it was like, oh, there's really something happening there. Like the descriptions of the, the bedroom in the dark and the, the monsters under the bed. I mean, it just, there was something about it that was like, oh, there's, there's something here that I really like. So tell us a little bit about the Peter Ash series, about what you're writing now. I write a, a crime series about a Marine Corps Iraq War veteran named Peter Ash, who's suffering from post-traumatic stress that makes it difficult for him to be inside for long periods of time. Um, difficult really uh, to fit back into normal life. And that's, I think, what a life is often like for people who come home from war. And so I write the sixth book in the series is going to come out in January. And uh, each book is set in a different place. And uh, I take on a, a different sort of social issue in every novel. So it's it's uh, income inequality, how veterans are treated. I wrote a book about race and class. I wrote a book about sort of the ramifications of legal cannabis. And they're not, you know, you, you wouldn't say to yourself, oh, this is a, a book about a topic. I really like books that, ha- that are about something, that have something in the, in the background and books where you learn something and that make you think about something. So that's kind of my goal as a, as a writer. The, the goal is for these to be more thoughtful than your average crime novel, but that doesn't mean they're super thoughtful. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of adventure and fistfights and gunfights and good guys and bad guys and that kind of stuff. Well, I have to say from someone who doesn't typically read mysteries and thrillers, didn't until you wrote your first one. And I read the first one about a zillion times, but I really started to read thrillers and mysteries once you started writing them. The funny thing about crime fiction is I think crime fiction allows writers to explore a really wide range of worlds and talk about a wide range of issues all within the sort of the envelope of this fast moving, exciting story. And, you know, I think some of our best writers working today write crime fiction and it's, it's easy to dismiss it as sort of commercial fiction or genre fiction. But um, in, in terms of the quality of the prose, in terms of the development of the characters, there's, there's such wonderful stuff out there. To me, there's such a richness to that. So I'm glad that you have sort of found an opening into that world. Mm -hmm. All the research that you did for these books, you did a lot of research on PTSD and veterans and all the social issues. I know that you're a very avid reader of The New Yorker. You're interested in all the minutiae that happens in the world along with political issues and technology. And you're just interested in the world as a whole, which I think is fascinating. But what I want to know is how did researching all those things affect your daily life? Did anything change with your emotional or mental life or with social relationships once you started digging into these things a little more? Well, it's funny because my first novel that got published was the first book in the Peter Ash series called The Drifter. And I had given up hope that I was going to become a published novelist. I'd written three books I couldn't get published. And 
I just decided that I was just going to write for me. I was going to write a book that I wanted to read. I was going to make something for myself. And that book was about all of the things that I was thinking about at the time. It was because I, I ran a, a home inspection business at the time, as you know, and I had all of these clients who are coming back from the surge in Iraq and, um, and, and talking with veterans in a way that I really hadn't before because I, I wasn't in the service. And I just kind of like fell in love with these young men and women. And I really, I realized, A, how, how little I had thought about their lives coming back. I'd followed the course of the war, but but I, it opened up this whole other world to me, and that was, that's been really valuable. And different ways of thinking about the world and different ways of thinking about service. And that's, that's really been a somewhat profound shift for me. In what way? I've developed a greater respect for people with lives very different from my own. It's really widened my perspective. And I, I always thought of myself as somebody who, you know, I, I knew a lot of different kinds of people and I was interested in, in a lot of different facets of uh, kind of American life. And it really made me realize how, that I was much narrower than I, than I had thought. And I've, I've made some real friendships along the way with people who really, you know, have, have lived such very different lives than I have. And I, I can't ever imagine I mean, I, I, it's, it's, my, it's my business now. It is the living, my living to imagine the life of somebody who has been through profound changes, through years of combat uh, in, in one of the most difficult combat environments ever. And I, I still feel like I can't, I, I can't begin to really understand that experience because it's something I haven't lived through. But it's, it's given me a much greater amount of empathy for sure. And it's widened my range of friendships. It's made me think very differently about, about politics, about sort of our social safety net, kind of all this other stuff. It's been a really, it's been a really eye-opening and, and a wonderful experience. Ongoing conversations, people who reach out to me randomly saying that they'd read something I'd written. And that was completely unexpected. Were there reactions or conversations that you hoped to spark in your readers? And the reaction that came, was it the same as what you thought would happen? That's a great question, though, because I never thought that first book would get published. And about three weeks before the publication date, I, I kind of had this oh shit moment. It was like, oh my God, people are going to read this and, and, <laughs> and they're going to realize that I have no idea what I'm talking to, that I'm a total fraud, that I don't, that I'm not a veteran, that I don't, I haven't lived that life. And I, like, I was like, oh my God, is it too late to stop this? And my, my editor said, you know, it's going to be fine. This is fiction. Everybody knows this is not you. This is not your real life. And, and part of that is just sort of imposter syndrome. And, and part of it was realizing that this thing that I had made, this book that I had made, was going to be a real thing. But the, the funny thing is that the reaction was so overwhelmingly positive to that first book. It became a national bestseller. It was nominated for six awards and won three. And I mean, that was all wonderful. But to me, the most gratifying piece was that veterans would reach out to me and say, that book really spoke to my experience. You really captured my experience really well. And, and that still really means so much to me that I was trying to capture the totality of this experience uh, the positives and the negatives in a, you know, the, the emotional piece of it. And to have people who had lived that life tell me that I had was so enormously gratifying. So I know that writing was once a hobby for you. It was play. You did it so that 
you didn't kill your immediate family or go crazy. Um, I did it because I couldn't help myself. Exactly. Although there were times when you tried to stop and we said, no, you need to keep writing, right? But once it transformed and became your job, how did that change how you play? It's something I'm still trying to figure out. I just finished the sixth book and I was partway through the fourth book. I write a book a year, which is part of the one of the most profound challenges for me of doing this is that my publisher has me on a book a year schedule, which I am not a fast writer. I know people who work much faster than I do. And and that's, to me, that's one of the most profound challenges is to just, is to work that quickly. But it was really only a couple of years ago, the middle, partway through the fourth book where suddenly the economics changed enough that, well, it wasn't even the economics. It was that I, I couldn't keep it up any longer. I couldn't continue to run a home inspection business and write a book a year and, you know, not jump off a bridge and manage to stay married and to see my son and to, you know, just not lose my mind. And, and a conversation with my publisher about the next, my next book contract. So the economics changed and I could, I could afford to not be a home inspector anymore, but it really pushed a lot of buttons for me. And I, I've learned, since learned that this is really common, not just for writers, but for artists of all sorts. When they become full-time at something, it changes your fundamental relationship to the work that you do. It used to be, you know, where I went to kind of hide from the world and play pretend. And now it's, it's super important. It's how I pay my mortgage. It's uh, hopefully how I'm going to spend the rest of my life. And, and so that's a, that's a real challenge and play to go back to the actual question um, is something that I have, I have a hard time with now because writing was, was my play for so long and now it's my work. And, and what else do I do? I, I, I've built furniture. I've renovated the homes that we've lived in. Um, I've, I've done all that kind of stuff, but it's hard to justify the time away. And my previous life as a, as a renovation contractor and as a home inspector, that was also such seasonal work. There was always a slow time, either between projects or a slow time in the, in the real estate sales cycle where I knew I could, I could dive back into the book and I could work more. And, and now there is no slow time. Now it's just go, go, go. And that's a hard thing, especially when you are, you know, when it's creative work. And I, I know writers for whom it is a much more of a assembling a puzzle kind of job. The story moves from A to Z and here are the places in between and it's a very it's a very intellectual process. For me it's a much more intuitive process. I don't outline. I start at the beginning and I write to the end. Uh, I'm just feeling my way in the dark the whole time. And so that particular way that I work and I've tried to work other ways and you know is kind of the is kind of how I do this apparently. And and I, I resisted this for a long time, but it's much more how how fine artists work than how commercial artists work. And I wish it could be much more like building a house or, or building a piece of furniture where <laughs> I know where I'm going, I know what I'm doing, I need to do this piece and then the next piece. And unfortunately, that's just not that how it is. And it play is that much harder because I spend all my time, I really spend every waking fucking minute thinking about the, the, pro <laughs> the project that I'm working on. And, and as you know, that can be a little hard to live with, but imagine being in my head. <laughs> uh, so it's a you know it's a it's a real challenge so for me play is like i go for a walk but everything i do for play is also in the service of finding the next missing piece of the book or you know recharging myself so i can go back to work the next day it's all framed around that and that's probably the fundamental problem i'm sure if i 
So a, a psychiatrist or they would tell me I was, you know, there's something very wrong with me. But, <laughs> but it's, it's the only way I know how to do this. Is there nothing else in your life that brings you that sense of flow that gets you out of thinking about the next plot line or the next character? Does mountain biking do that? Mountain biking absolutely does that. Um, exercise that is that is reactive as opposed to, you know, going to the gym and lifting weights or whatever, like that is the most boring thing on the planet. But yeah, mountain biking or, or rollerblading to some extent, although rollerblading, the trick is just not to fall over mountain biking. It's, it's a much more dynamic process. And you're just um, trying not to break your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I've tried not to kill myself, which is, which is very uh, in the moment, right? Actually, a couple of the wipeouts that I've had, not the, not the one where I ended up having surgery, but the, I had a, one wipeout where I was definitely thinking about you know, plot points <laughs> and I was not paying attention to the log I was trying to jump or something and ended up going over the handlebars. So I have to like make, I have to force myself to stay in the moment. Um, and unfortunately, as you know, with COVID, the, the bike trails are full uh, of pedestrians. So it's, it's harder for me to just sort of hop on the bike when I want. I have to, I have to plan it out a little more, go in the morning when there's nobody else up. All right. Let's talk about obsessions. Is there something that infiltrates your creative work, your writing? Well, I, I'm always trying to think about how can I fold the real world into a book? <laughs> you know, I, I wrote this book set in Memphis. There was going to be an earthquake at the center of it because Memphis is, a, is the largest city in the New Madrid fault zone, which is, you know, one of our sort of unknown, unless you live there, earthquake areas in the country. And so I started writing about Memphis and but what really showed up in Memphis was the issue of race and class. And so, you know, I wrote this whole book about Memphis and there was no earthquake in it at all because I was really interested in, and this was, this was at a time when uh, there was quite a conversation about race going on in our country. Um, it's dwarfed by the conversation going on right now, but I was really interested in exploring all those things. And it was part of what I had studied as an undergraduate. Uh, as well. So it's part of why I'm really interested in the world is because those are the things that I want to sort of build into my work. But I mean, the thing I'm truly obsessed with is the work itself is how to tell a story, how to make the story flow from one scene to the next, how to, how to write a good sentence is actually what the bulk of my day is spent on is writing one good sentence and then writing the next good sentence, which seems totally boring. I mean, that's a big chunk of what I what I think about all day. The book I'm working on is always the largest obsession in my life by a factor of 10 or 20 because I just can't turn it off. And sometimes I, I want to turn it off. I need to turn it off because a lot of the work happens in the back of your head, in my head, where um, conscious thought about something doesn't work. I need to go away and do something else. Uh, I need to go listen to a podcast or I need to, you know, replace the their garage door or, you know, do some annoying home repair project. You know, I have all these other weird little obsessions that filter through my life too. Do you think your obsession is sort of current events? It's really less about current events than it is about the world, right? So now I'm, I'm reading right now this article in the New Yorker about space junk and the perils that it poses to satellites and space station. And, and okay, I'm interested in technology. I read a lot of sci-fi growing up, but like it's this weird arcane little thing and every weird arcane little thing has within it its own language, 
it, its own uh, set of observations, its own way of looking at the world and thinking about the world. Um, so I, I, it's a, it's a little, it's a window into a piece of, of, of life that I hasn't occurred to me before. I'm obsessed with everything. But now, now that's just pathological. Well, it kind of is. I mean, I, in, in part, in order to, to do what I do for a living, you have to be a certain kind of person. You have to be somebody who is obsessive to be able to write a novel in a year that, you know, is going to hit the bestseller list. Enough people are going to read and like so that they tell their friends about it and also do all of the other components of being a, an author in the modern age is doing a little bit of social media and going on book tour. And, and the people that I know that do this for a living are really remarkable people. And they also have this level of sort of interest in the world. And I, it took me a long time to realize that I was one of them. I thought I was just kind of a weird dude. Well, <laughs> which is not untrue, but, but there's well, a whole tribe of weird dudes like you out there. Yes. Yes. And part of it was just realizing and going to my first, actually going to my first crime fiction conference, it was like coming home. It was realizing that this is, these are my people. I've read a lot of interviews by authors and artists. I've listened to a lot of podcasts interviewing authors and artists. And, and there, there are these common themes that come through. And part of it is just that, you know, people who are really in hot pursuit of their creative ambition are not people who who work nine to five and sit on the couch the rest of the day. They are not people who are interested in, you know, just sitting around and waiting to see if something happens. They're, in general, we are high energy people who are interested in creating things from some internal drive. And, and it's got to be a powerful drive to overcome all of the other crap that the world, you know, has to offer, to overcome social media and 47 million streaming television shows and, uh, you know, our family and our friends and the other things that, that are interesting. I mean, you, you know, you, you really do have to uh, sort of decide, well, or maybe the decision is made for you, that, that this is the life that you want. And it's not an easy life by any stretch. But I don't, I have no plan B. I'm way, I'm way far past that point. So it's very reassuring. <laughs> I'm just glad to be married to somebody who is like, well, okay, you're a weird dude, but you're my weird dude. You're totally my weird dude. What's so interesting is that what it really looks like, what you just described was someone with all this, you know, with high energy and they don't work nine to five and sit on the couch afterwards. And, you know, they're always working on the next thing. What it really looks like to someone who's not inside your head is that it does sort of look like you work nine to five and then you sit on the couch and read your book because that's kind of what you do. But what's happening inside your head, all the voices, right? Everything that's happening when you're walking, when you're making tea. I mean, it looks like a pretty quiet life from the outside, but there's right, but, a lot but, going on in there. Yes, and when you're a writer, staring out the window is actually when you do right. a huge chunk of work. I mean, you and I have had this conversation over years, <laughs> this disconnect where you're like, you know, why, why don't you What do you do, do all day? Yeah. I don't, you, <laughs> what, you're making another damn cup of tea? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I can only drink so much coffee. So at a certain point, I have to switch to tea. I have to say, it's been interesting during the pandemic, right? So I've been working from home. Nick has always worked from home. We live in a pretty small house. And now it just became really apparent, like what we each do all day. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I could not sit in an office all day long with my thoughts and a computer. I don't know how you sit there for so many hours, but, but it also looks a lot like, what are you doing now? Go write. Just go write. I am writing, but you're staring out the window. <laughs> yeah, that's what writing looks like sometimes. I know. Takes a while to learn that. All right, let's move on. So tell me a little bit about your support system. How do you connect with your community? Well, one of the challenges with being a writer is that there aren't very many people who really understand what it's like or what the what the challenges are. And so I have found it really helpful to go to conferences and talk with people. And I, I've made some really good friends with people who I actually don't see very often or even have a lot of conversation with outside those conferences. But because we're engaged in the same weird thing, we have a kind of a mutual understanding. And I have found those to be enormously important to me to go hang out with the writers. There's a group here in Milwaukee that I uh, will go have a beer with periodically. And, and, you know, we're all, we're all engaged in the same, you know, kind of weird stuff. And, you know, I mean, I have, I have lots of friends who do lots of different things, but they, they don't understand what the process is like, just like I don't really understand what it's like to be a orthopedic surgeon or whatever else. So I, I found that to be really helpful. And the, the other thing that is surprising how, how much I get out of it is actually going on book tour because I spend, as you, as you said before, I spend so much time in my office staring at the laptop, you know, going over, you know, paragraphs of paragraphs and, and obsessing over it all. And and I forget that there's this is that this is going to go out into the world. And and when I when I step out into the world and talk to people who are actually you know reading the stuff that I write, it's so gratifying to see how it it's it's effect in the real world. You know, to me that's the best part about social media as well is when people reach out to me, not just to say hey I like your I like your book, but to talk about what why it meant something to them or what it said to them. So it feels like real communication in that way. And it's easy to forget when I'm alone in my office that that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to tell a story to, to somebody out there. And it's a, it's this miraculous thing that I, I have something in my head that I put into words on the page and somebody else who I've never met reads those words on the page and receives something from that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a miraculous transaction it's a miraculous form of communication. And, and that's what I get with reader events is I, I get to talk to people who are avid readers and who are interested in talking about books and who want to, you know, who are curious about kind of what this weird life is like. So those are probably the two, the two most important forms of support for my work life I get that I get. Is there something in your creative practice that's challenging for you that people might not expect? The life of a best-selling author is very glamorous. <laughs> and it's, it's just beer and Skittles every day, let me tell you. We just have a ball every day. Um, we, we all were drinking and, from gold-plated glasses. Right. Well, what's interesting is you wrote the first book. It got nominated for all these awards. You know, all of our friends were like, oh, you're going to buy a big mansion on the lake and <laughs> they're not going to be friends with us anymore. And now, you know, six books later, we're still in our tiny little house and, you know, living close to the bone. And I mean, it's great that you get to full, do this full time. It's still a job. You still have to like get up and do your job every day. And but people have this idea about 
best-selling authors and how cool it is and how great. And aren't you lucky to be able to do this thing? And you are very, very lucky. And I know you know that and you do realize it, but is there something else that's challenging that people might not expect? I don't know. I, for me, the, the two most challenging things are that I spend most of my day sitting, which is not how I lived my life for the last 30 years. And I spent, I spent most of my time in the last 30 years talking with my customers or physically making things, uh, which was a huge source of pleasure to me. Both of those things were often a huge source of pleasure to me. And as a full-time author, I don't do either of those things. So the, the challenge is to keep moving so I don't you know, turn into a giant slug. And also, it's a very isolating thing to spend so much time you know, alone in an office, which is really the requirement for being a writer, for me anyway. Uh, is is to be is to, is to sit alone in a room with my thoughts, and that's the thing I'm struggling with now is trying to find a way back out into the world and to to continue to have that kind of community, but on a more regular basis. And I mean, I, to me, I think those are the those are my biggest challenges. I don't know if that's something that uh, other people wouldn't expect. But you make it seem so easy that you can sit in that office all day by yourself and sit. It's also the hardest thing I've ever done, aside from maybe being the parent of a small child, because it's really, it's really hard. As anybody who's ever tried to, you know, write anything knows, it's, it is really hard to get past, you know, self-doubt and insecurity and just the sheer level of discomfort uh, to, to sit there and to not know what happens next and to try to figure out how to say it in an interesting and artful way. And to just overcome that over and over and over again, not just every day, but multiple times every day. And to get myself into that state of flow where it becomes a pleasure and time disappears. But it takes a lot of work to overcome my own internal crap to, to, get, to get to that point. And that's not just me. That's, I think that's common with mm-hmm. uh, writers in particular. I'm not sure if visual artists fight that same fight, although I know some do. So what do you do to get unstuck or what do you do to get out of that mode? Are there tricks or tips or tools that you use? Well, depending on how bad it is and and where the problem is. So just on an everyday level, I try not to do anything except, I mean, I I try to work first thing in the morning and in in a perfect world, I would be, I would have a cup of coffee and breakfast and be at the computer with the document open within 15 minutes. You know, my body requires that I do a little stretching in the morning. Um, Now I'm 50, almost 52. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, my, my body needs a little more care than it used to. Um, and I have found that meditation really helps with my level of focus. So I've, I've started doing that as well in the morning. Uh, and I've, I've noticed that if I don't do that, then just the rest of the day is harder for me. Um, so those are kind of the two things that I do. But I, you know, in a, in a perfect world, I don't listen to a podcast before I go to work in the morning. I don't have a conversation before I go to work in the morning. <laughs> That's sometimes Which, a problem. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, in a perfect world and life is not perfect, but because I'm, it's sort of gestating. And then I, and then I sit in my chair and I open the document and I, what I tell myself is, well, I don't have to write anything, but I can't do anything else. 
Daniel Pinkwater, who who wrote the, some of the the best children's books on the planet. Oh, for um, sure. Used to have a thing where he 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 didn't make himself write, but he he had to sit there for two hours every day, and he wouldn't allow himself to do anything else. And that's that's a principle I've used for a long time. And so, like, I'm not allowed to you know pull a book out of my bookshelf or. I'm not allowed to look at the news or check my email or any of those things. And it doesn't take long before some sentence in that document sort of tugs at me. And it's like, yeah, you know, you should really, you should, you know, reverse those clauses or that's not the right word or, and it's not long before the story itself sort of pulls me in, the, the work itself sort of pulls me in. But I have to, I have to be quiet enough because that's a, it, it's really a very quiet, whispery voice that says hey you know that sentence right there you could make that better and it's easy to it's easy to not pay attention so i i try to sort of reduce all of the all of the external stuff in the morning so that i i can listen i for that voice when it when it starts to talk to me about what to do next so i can actually hear that voice i think your obsession really is a good sentence I think a lot about it. Yeah. Okay, let's change text a little bit. Tell me about your relationship with social media. Social media is something that I need to do in my in my professional life as an author. And sometimes I enjoy it, but I, it also pushes all of my buttons, the political stuff or some friend of mine whose work is doing really well, I get jealous of or... I am very aware that social media is not good for me in, in any way. And so I kind of go in and do my thing and I use it to talk to some friends, but, but I, for me, it's, as, it's I, I try not to spend much time on it because it can totally consume your life, A, and B, you're always comparing somebody else's highlight reel to your you know, bloopers. So for me, I, I try not to spend too much time on it because I don't think it's good for me. Is there something in your office that you can't live without? So many things. Um, it's funny because I really worked out of my truck for 30 years and I, I never really had a, an office I spent much time in. I would pay bills or I would, you know, work on the website or I would do, you know, I was there for a couple of hours on and off and it was where I kept the, the Detroitus of my business. But it was never a place where I always spent my work life in other people's houses. And to have an office where I spend my day is both incredibly confining i have days where it's just like oh my god don't make me go in there and it's also like i get to surround myself with the things that i things that i love and things that help me work so i have this giant four by six bulletin board that's covered with index cards um some of which is kind of inspirational stuff some of which is most of which is kind of the book in progress i, I kind of outline as i go and so i can see the structure of it but i, I have a collection of fountain pens that's my absolute favorite writing instrument I work on the computer, which is where I compose most of my sentences, but I also use a, a Moleskine journal to think about story and think about characters. And I also have a big artist pad with no lines, no nothing, no kind of no form to it, where I will think about uh, bigger issues or I'll draw diagrams for, uh, you know, just physically, how does this seen in this parking lot play out uh you know what's the physicality of of that or it's a great brainstorming tool because i can draw arrows and scribble stuff out and so those are kind of the 
the main tools of my work life. Uh, but I also, I have this air on chair that I bought with the money from my first book, which I could not spend the day in my office without a really good chair. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the thing that makes the rest of it possible in a way. Do you have a uniform? Well, we do have a saying in this family, which is uh, <laughs> pants by noon. I, try, I do try to wear actual clothes before noon. but with Like with buttons, you mean? <laughs> not sweatpants. Yeah. Like sweatpants don't count as pants as far as I'm concerned. I don't know. No, I, don't, I mean, other than that, I don't think I have a uniform. I just, I just <laughs> want to be comfortable. I've never had a job where I had to work in a coat and tie or anything like that. So I, I have an affinity for uh, practical clothes that you could basically beat the crap out of. So I have hiking pants and Carhartts and flannel shirts and soft t-shirts, soft t-shirts. Yes, for sure. Is there a non-creative endeavor on your bucket list? That's a good question. So one of my, one of my favorite things to do is to get into the back countries to go backpacking. And so that's something that our son Duncan and I have, have done for boy, a few years in a row now, since he was a freshman in high school and he's now in his second year at university. You know, spending time really in, in the natural world is really important to me. And, you know, Duncan's out of the house now, more or less. So he and I do less of that. So I, I think of you and I, you know, going to some national parks and hiking in that way. I know you're not interested in sleeping on the ground or carrying a heavy backpack, but, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to go to the Grand Canyon where I've never been. I'd love to go to Yellowstone. I'd love to go do some of those kinds of trips with you, a, a rafting trip, a sea kayaking trip. I, you know, that's, that's definitely kind of stuff is definitely on my bucket list. I, it's a little hard for me to imagine getting there. Well, certainly in, in this day and age, you know, getting on an airplane is not something I really want to do, but it's something that I really think about. And those experiences that I've had in the past are some of the most profound and are the, some of the ones that are the most lodged in my memory. And so I want to keep, I want to keep feeding that. I support that idea. Do you feel like you've had to give anything up to get where you are today? That's a funny question. I've given up so much to be able to have a life writing fiction, but none of it really felt like a sacrifice. You know, the important thing to me is to, is, is my family life. And uh, I, I know that you would always like more time with me, except for the times when you don't want to ever talk to me again, but. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but. It's a little extreme. Um, you know, I don't think I've, I've given up anything important. I mean, I guess I could have I guess I could have other hobbies or I could have done other things and I'm not, I don't really have any hobbies anymore, I guess, except maybe backpacking, but I, I don't, I, I don't know that I could have ever lived a different way. I mean, this is, I always used to sort of roll my eyes at people who were like, Oh, I'm an artist. And I just, it's, I'm just drawn to it. And, and, but honestly, that's, I mean, I don't think of myself as an artist and I never will. I, uh, I think of myself maybe as a, as a craftsman, but this is the life that's been calling me since I was a kid. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever, you know, between, between my life in houses and my life with, with telling stories, I'm not sure anything else was ever really available to me. It's not like I was ever going to go to law school. It's not like I was ever going to, you know, learn to, to be a programmer or none of those things ever appealed to me in any way. Um, so life in general, starting at a, at a, 
a pretty young age, you begin to realize that you're you're limiting your options. And every every positive choice that you make to do something means there are other things that you don't get to do. And I, I'm okay with that. I mean, there are obviously there are other lives I'd be interested in living, but this is always the life I was going toward. I'm just lucky that I actually get to do the thing that I've been always wanting to do. If you had the chance and for some reason you couldn't craft a good sentence anymore. Is there another profession that you'd like to give a go? Well, I would like to, I think it'd be fun to rehab houses. You and I have talked about this. And again, I'm not sure I want to be the guy swinging a hammer anymore, Um, but I think it would be fun to, to sort of make those design decisions. It's a hugely time consuming process as well. So again, I'm not sure that's any offing. You know, one of the things that amazes me about what you do is is the way that you see the world is so fundamentally different than the way that I see the world. It's just the way that you look at color and shape is something that I, it's, I, don't, I feel like those are muscles I don't have. And one of the things that I've thought about for, for a few years now that I, I haven't done anything about, because I don't, again, we're in this tiny room, this tiny house, and we don't really have room for this kind of stuff. But I think it'd be fun to make sculptures, some sort of kinetic sculpture, you know, you know, wind whirly gigs or, you know, just something goofy and playful and fun. Uh, but again, I, you know, I, I haven't been able to get myself started. And, you know, I think we would need more than a, our tiny little already packed garage in order to me to be able to do some of that <laughs> stuff. I think that's a hobby you should seriously consider once we move to a place with more land. How about that? More, In a shed. More land? Are we moving to a place with more land? Well, more land than we have here. Okay. A bigger yard? Should I just call it a bigger yard? No, I, I'm I, not moving to 20 acres. <laughs> no, I said no. You're and not I'm sticking with it. No, no, I need people around me. Yeah, I know. Me too. Um, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? Words of know. advice? Keep showing up. Do what you can to quiet the internal voices that tell you that you're not very good at this and just say thank you for your opinion. And we can have this discussion another time and just. Go to work, make the thing that you need to make and then do it again and show up tomorrow and do it again and then show up the next day and do it again. That is my advice to anybody who wants to make something, whether you want to build a business or you want to write a novel or you want to paint a painting or you want to do anything at all. The only obstacle is in your head. Whoa. I'm super profound. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. You keep doing what you're doing confront those demons and keep writing i have no choice it 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 actually it it's been so much easier to keep showing up once i realized that it wasn't it wasn't a problem that i had once i realized that it was never going to get easier that it wasn't a problem inherent to me that this is just what it's like i had this book that gave me a lot of trouble and I, i blew my deadline by a huge wide margin and I really, for a stretch of time, I was really like filled with despair. Like, am I, am I going to be able to finish this book? Am I going to be able to imagine that, to manage this life? And, and I, I went on the book tour kind of in the middle of this. And I, I arranged to have, to have my book tour be conversations with other authors because I wanted to ask them about this part of that process. And every single one of them said, it's not you. This is just, you know, somebody who'd written... 20 novels or 25 novels, you know, would say to me, oh yeah, no, every, every, every time I start a book, I wonder if I can actually ever do it again. Every day sitting down to work is the hardest thing that I do. 
and and to realize that it's not just me that this is what all of this creative work is about is when you are putting yourself out there when it's really you um, it's a risk to put yourself out there and and it made me feel so much better not just that like i'm not crazy and i'm not alone in, in this but but that it, this is just what the work is it's actually really helped me to reconcile myself to the fact that that what i do for a living is just really hard and that there are a huge number of people who would love to be able to do what i do and the fact that they that they that they can't is because the work is really hard and it's not just you know can you manage to put together a good sentence or can you uh, create a character that resonates with people but it's it's just can you get can you put your butt in the seat for enough hours every day can you get yourself to face that you know self doubt and uncertainty every day that's a rare talent and it is a talent to be able to you know live a life where it's it's not a regular life so that's all made me feel so much better about it and i stopped waiting for it to become easier because i think for a long time i was just waiting for it to be easier like there was something wrong with me because i it was so hard for me but i know really successful writers really successful writers who you know face these same struggles every day every starting every book coming to the end of every book it's the same stuff so i don't know i mean i, I guess maybe that's the advice i should really be giving to your listeners is you know creative work is is always hard and it's not it's not your fault it just is so you can either agonize about it or you can show up and get to work. That doesn't stop me from agonizing <laughs> about it, of course. <laughs> That's okay. Maybe it'll help tomorrow. Yeah. You've been interviewed a lot, virtually, in person, with other authors, by yourself. But you've also interviewed other authors. What do you think about either of those? They're very different. I enjoy being interviewed because it actually makes me think about my process in a way that I don't normally think about my process. You know, a, a good interviewer asks questions that help me, that helps me think about how I think about things. And it's why I love listening to your show because you ask such great questions, but it doesn't require preparation on my part. I don't really get nervous anymore. Um, unless I'm going to be on television, I get nervous before I'm going to be on television. It's the shiny head. Yes. Yeah, so I do have a very shiny forehead. It's true. <laughs> I also have been doing this thing at our, our local bookstore, Boswell Books, where it's another author's book tour, and I am the interviewer. And I find that to be really challenging because my job is to help somebody else shine and to ask questions that are probably not the same questions that they're always being asked. But I also, to do that, I have to really dive into somebody else's work and look at their work in a way that I don't normally as a reader, I have to really look at their work. It's like I have to put my inner English major to work a little bit. And I really enjoy that because I, it, it helps me to think about somebody else's work in a deeper way. So I'm going to interview John Grisham on October 14th. And I've been reading him for a long time. And he's a super successful, prolific author. And I, like, I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation because you know, part of me is still the little kid who's like, how do you do it? How have you managed to make this work? And I'm still enormously curious how other writers and, and, and artists, you know, manage to live their creative life. And so that's, that's the, the great thing to me about being an interviewer is I can ask some of those questions. That's great. I can totally see that. They pull out different strengths in you. Yeah. You ready for your rapid fire questions? Oh, dear. Okay, you bet. Lay it on me. All right, Mr. Petrie. 
Music, podcast, audiobook, or silence? Silence. Almost always. <laughs> <laughs> What's your comfort food? Mexican food. Describe your favorite outdoor spot. I have a lot of favorite outdoor spots. The, the one that comes to mind was this beach in Iceland where I went with Duncan and it was, it was midnight and, and still light out and the sand was black and the waves were just rolling in. I've actually got a video of it somewhere. The landscape of Iceland is still so very powerfully in my mind. There's a place in Washington state where I went backpacking with a friend years and years and years ago. I think it's called Copper Ridge. I went on a backpacking trip in Colorado with Duncan where we went off trail and hiked this, the perimeter of this big bowl where I can still, if I close my, I only have to close my eyes, I can still see it all. All right. Be very careful how you answer this one. It might have implications later down the line. What would you do with a financial windfall? I guess this is a financial windfall just to you and not to a married couple. I don't, that's not how it works in a marital property state. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, if I won the lottery, I, I would tear down our house and I would build something uh, with uh, more space that would help us do the things we love to do. That's a very good answer. Seriously, sweetie, thank you so much for doing it's this. My, it's I really appreciate it. I know it's, you said you wanted to wait until I was further in, but I think you were just avoiding it. <laughs> I just didn't want to be the gratuitous family interview. I hope people think you're interesting. I didn't do this because you're my husband. I did it because I think you have a really interesting perspective and you have the same challenges that any creative person has. Absolutely. So best-selling author, Nick Petrie of the Peter Ash series. <laughs> I love you, baby. I love you too. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Bye. Bye. See you for dinner. <laughs> Bye.